We're still in the book of Luke, of course, and still actually in the first chapter, looking at preparing for the Messiah. Got through verse 11, and I stopped there. That's where we'll pick up today. But I want to read further from verse 12 through verse 25, Luke chapter 1. If you remember, Zechariah is ministering in the temple. He and his wife Elizabeth are uh, very uh, heavy laden because they have not had a child. And uh, that is going to be dealt with here. Beginning in verse 12, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. That was the angel that we mentioned last week. (laughs) And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers, your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah (laughs) to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord people prepared. And then we come to this portion here, which... Uh, if Zechariah had not been tentative in believing the angel, probably would not have been in scripture the next several verses. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent. I'm not able to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. You remember we left off with verse 11. Zechariah encounters an angel. He's in the middle of doing his duties in the temple, uh, making the sacrifices, the evening and the morning sacrifices, giving incense and prayers for the people. And uh, all of a sudden, he (laughs) sees an angel. And scripture says he was afraid, he was troubled. I don't know, uh, I think I told you last week about how my wife greeted me one day when I was putting clothes away, like to give me a heart attack. I don't know what would happen if I saw an angel appear before me. Uh, She is angelic in a lot of ways, but but we're talking an angel from God, from heaven. He was troubled. And isn't it interesting how the scripture puts this? Fear fell on him. It is, if you will, from the hand of God, I believe that this is happening. Literally, uh, the word that is given here means shaken or stirred up. If you remember in John chapter five, 
there's a man by a pool and somebody said to him, why don't you go and uh, get healed? The water's here at this pool, give healing. And then he said, I cannot go because no one is here to move me when the waters are troubled. That was a sign that this was a time for healing. The same word is used there that is used here. Figuratively, it means terrified. In Matthew chapter 14, you remember when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water. And he came to them and they were terrified. They'd been with him, walking with him in his earthly ministry for some time. And he does this and man, it just blows their mind. What's going on? They were afraid. They knew he had power. They saw some demonstration of it when he did that. The same word is there. Terrified. This is typical of angelic appearances. It would be true of us, I believe, as I said, if he, if a, a, an angel appeared to us. And he almost always says, fear not. We're going to see that two or three other times in the book of Luke, an angelic appearance. <laughs> Zechariah was waiting for the promised Messiah, here doing his work as a priest before God. He's waiting for the deliverance that the Messiah would, would give. And that may have been the prayer he was offering at this particular time. No doubt he is empowered and, and commissioned to go and offer prayers for the forgiveness of the people's sins. And perhaps at the same time, he's asking for the coming of Messiah. People were looked, some faithful Jews were still looking for this. And we're going to deal with three or four of those in the book of Luke. I believe he was. But in the midst of that, he is scared. The angel came to make an announcement and just out of thin air, if you will, appeared there and came with that announcement. He's announcing the very thing that Zechariah and Elizabeth's hearts have been troubled about. He's come to tell them, you're going to have a son. And what a way to come. Um, you know, any appearance of an angel would have, would make us afraid, wouldn't it? I don't know if you've ever seen one. I, I don't want to get into all that. But there are many other instances in Scripture where this happens. It's going to happen in the book of Luke when Mary is visited with an angel. It's going to happen other places too. It happened to Moses. It happened to Daniel when he was down at the river and an angel appeared to him. It happened to the women at the sepulcher, didn't it? After Jesus had arisen, an angel appeared to them. It happened to John on the island of Patmos. Sometimes God works this way. His scripture is completed now. It's not an ordinary means of communicating to us that is an angelic presence. But listen, <laughs> why? let me ask you, why do you think he was afraid of this angel? Would you be afraid? Why? I believe, though, that, that angels are all around us. We just don't see them. God doesn't give us that vision. You've never seen one before. So my, my mother, bless her heart, uh, who's with the Lord now, I believe, loved angels and she collected figures of them. I don't, I never got to talk to her about the theology of that because we've lived apart for so many years. She in Pennsylvania, me here. But 
Besides their presence and never seeing one, what else would have made him be afraid, do you think? They were probably pretty awesome looking. Didn't you think that they would emit some kind of glow or some kind of something special that would make you I do. Afraid? I believe that. They're, they're an ambassador for the Lord. And they've come. There's also uh, an underlying feeling of unfitness. You're in the presence of a holy being. <laughs> and, and who of us is fit to stand in the presence of a holy being? This isn't the only time this happens. In the Old Testament, you see this when some of the patriarchs encountered angels. Some of them fell down and began to worship. And uh, no, I'm not God. Get up. That's, that's the approach. We, we begin to think of our sins, don't we? You say he appears in all this majesty and his holiness, and then you can't help but think, what am I in, in the presence of this holy emissary from, from God? On top of that, you should ask yourself the question, as I, as I have from studying this, if that's the reaction to the angels, what must the Lord of the angels be like? What must our God be like? If we saw him, we would fall down. <laughs> we would at least be face first on the floor, if not struck dead because of his holiness. We can't even look upon him. Moses, what a sweet request that was in the book of Exodus, asked to see the Lord. All he could see was the hind parts of God after he passed by and that from a cleft of a rock. Otherwise, Moses would have died. Tremendous thing. And the Jews felt that way. If they had seen God, they didn't even pronounce his name. They left a couple of letters out of his name when they wrote it. They wouldn't even say Yahweh, let alone look at him. And they wouldn't look at his holy emissaries either. So Zechariah was a good godly man for the most part. Well, we'll go on and look at this. That's what happens when this emissary comes. He appears at the right side of the altar. Zechariah's heart hits this speed bump. And uh, Gabriel's probably, I don't know how many angels there are. There are only two, as far as I can tell in scripture, who were named. Do you know the other one other than Gabriel? Michael, Michael that's right. In a little bit of study I did on this, uh, you can get off to a lot, of, a lot of side roads if you're not careful. It seems that Gabriel brings a message of, of hope, and deliverance, and Michael oftentimes is associated with a message of judgment. And uh, I'll give you something to study this week. <laughs> but, you know, Gabriel comes. He's the bearer of good news. This ought to be the best news that Zechariah could hear. You know, I've come to tell you this. The prayer, your prayer, has been answered. You and Elizabeth will have a son and you'll call his name John. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? The angel said, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. God answers the prayer, but that's not it. Just don't go galloping off on your own thinking that's it. God's still in charge. He said, you're going to have a son, but you're going to name him John. Okay. <laughs> God has a claim on him. He answered the prayer, but he has a claim on John. 
And he has a claim on all of our children, really. Uh, we might not have named ours uh, <laughs> like Zechariah and Elizabeth did. Uh, we might not have named them with a direct name from Scripture, but God still has a claim on them. You'll name him John. How so? The name John could mean, uh, and there's a little difference of interpretation depending on who you read, but one of the read, uh, the key word in this is graciousness. John means God has been gracious. No wonder God wanted him to name his son John. God has been gracious. How has he been gracious here in giving them John? Well, there's a double blessing here, okay? You already know it. You're just not thinking of it. Perhaps your teacher isn't asking the right question, but we'll see it here in a couple of minutes. This is the first communication directly from God that Israel has had in 400 years. And we discussed this a little bit last week. Think back 400 years from now, all of the things that have taken place. Think of the many things that have taken place in Israel. Now God is coming and directly communicating to his prophet. What we see here is a melding together of the message of what is called the Old Testament and the New Testament. In redemptive history, this is a demarcation. This is announcing the coming of the Messiah. This isn't just any birth. Because it's the Messiah coming, we're going to have a special announcement about his coming. And that's the purpose of John. He's going to be a forerunner. This is part of what we said, the uh, ordered account of what's going on in history by Luke. <laughs> it's interesting that John, his place in history is solidified with the words of Jesus. Do you remember Jesus wrote, uh, it's written for us in Matthew. I tell you, what a commendation. This is Jesus the Messiah. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. What a blessing it would be to hear those words. None is, is more important. None is greater than John. Well, we'll get to the, the notes I have for today. How about that? That was reviewed, believe it or not. Well, we have the appearance of the angel. It's unexpected. They've been waiting 400 years for something like this. And now here he is. And the result is Zechariah's trouble. Fear gripped him. Look at, let's look at the angel's message. In the first place it is, fear not in some translations. Lenski, a, a Jewish commentator from years ago, he said these words mean stop fearing. Stop it. That's an encouragement to some degree, isn't it? Why? Because fear equals a lack of faith. Now you say, well, how could this guy not be afraid? I don't know. It would have to be a measure of grace from God not to be afraid when an angel appears. But he's not relying upon everything that he learned to become a priest, obviously. But the angel says, do not be afraid. Fear not. Just remember the 
visitation. Well, let's we'll turn ahead a little bit in Luke chapter one. Let me go to verse 26. We have a similar visitation. In the sixth month, the angel who Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph at the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. That's a, that's a cordial greeting, isn't it? But then the next words, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. This angel came to her to speak to her and she's troubled. And the word there is the same as we see in reference to Zechariah. She was troubled in her heart, and I guess you would be too if God came to talk to you in your present pregnancy, tell you all about it. She was troubled, (laughs) but she should not have been. Go all the way down to chapter 2 here in Luke, verse 9. We have an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Who's this? The shepherds. The shepherds. A third reference in the first two chapters here, the same kind of incident. And the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Brothers and sisters, our God is a great God. He is to be feared in his holiness, in his majesty, in his otherness. He is not like us. And it's a, you can't do anything but uh, but fear him. The angel said to him, your prayer has been heard. What does he mean? For a son? Absolutely. But I said there's a double meaning here. What's the other meaning? He doesn't directly say this to John. What is it? The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. Wow. That's what he was in there praying about. I believe the words aren't there in scripture. That was part of his ministry. That was what a faithful Jew would do. Been looking for this for 400 years. (laughs) Maybe his wife told him many times when he went there, don't forget to pray, don't forget to pray. Uh, I've done that when I had to do something like teach. I've done that to to Chris. Don't forget to pray. Don't forget to pray. You have been heard. Wow. What if God said that to you? You have been heard. (laughs) You know, you take a step back. Wow. Why didn't I ask for this, this, this? We have a God that hears our prayers and he acknowledges that here. And he sends dynamic proof that he hears and answers. There's great fear here, but it ought not to have been. I think perhaps this prayer was answered, if you will, in eternity past. I don't necessarily think it was answered right at this moment. I think I told you about George Mueller, how many years he prayed for things and people became converted after his death. Sometimes... Early in our Christian experience, we begin, we begin to pray for things. Uh, some Christians I know keep a prayer list. I'm going to pray for these things today. That's what our intercessor is to help you with. You can go by that Monday through Friday or Sunday through Saturday and pray for certain things in there. 
Perhaps he starts, some people, Christians, start praying for these certain things every day or some things every day in their Christian experience. And it's a long time before they see an answer. It was a long time before the answer came to Israel and specifically to Zechariah and Elizabeth. A delay, a long delay, doesn't mean that Zechariah and his wife were rejected. May I encourage you, your prayers, because you don't instantly see them answered, are not necessarily rejected. It is a time for reflection. I might add it's a time for patience too. Our God does not deal in the same schedule as we do. Maybe they were giving up. If you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 3, Moses is begging with God. Basically, he's begging, let me go in and see the promised land, please. And he might have said, I've been dragging around the wilderness with these people for 40 years without a home. Let me go in. But God said, no. And then he says, basically, in those verses, you could read it for yourself. Verses 23 to 27 of Deuteronomy 3. Then he says to him, speak no more of the matter. Boy, that ends it, doesn't it? (laughs) Moses, this prayer isn't being answered. This plea is not being answered. And he knew why. He knew it was because of his sin before. There had to be a repercussion for that, even though he was forgiven and wasn't replaced as the leader of Israel until this time to go into the promised land. But it was answered, just didn't like the answer until God said, Let this be the end of the matter. And you don't hear another word in scripture from Moses about this. (laughs) But God did place him in a place where he could look all around and see the land that was promised. God showed him the proof of his hearing his prayer. We have that here. (laughs) We have that proof. God has a perspective as an eternal being. We need to remember that. We're time-centered people. We're in a certain time and a certain place. Well, verse 13, back to what we're reading here and getting to. You shall have a son, shall call him John. Let's look at John for a little bit, shall we? The prayer has been answered. What's so great about this blessing of having this son, John? Well, he's the son that they long for. But more than that, He is the one who is the forerunner of the Messiah. Well, what makes him worthy of this? Well, in the ultimate sense, nothing. (laughs) Nobody's worthy to do this kind of thing. Nobody's worthy to be called to this. But we have some indication of what's going on here. This prayer as answered at the opening of the way of salvation is going to be revealed in a clearer way to Israel through John and, of course, Jesus Christ. This is a great time, a time of joy, a time of gladness, and a time, like uh, Zechariah said here, the things you answered, asked for have been answered. Is there any more joy than to know that somebody's about to have a child? <laughs> uh, somebody shared that with me this morning before most of you come in. Good news. There's a grandchild coming on the way. It's good news. This is a joyous occasion. Think of this, good news, you're going to have a son. Now remember again what we said about a Jewish woman 
who didn't have children, she was thought to be cursed or being li- or living in sin because God did not bless her with a child from her womb. But the hidden reason for this joy is going to be revealed in the person of John and uh, what he's going to be doing once he's here. I want you to see John's greatness in verses 15 to 17. For he will be great before the Lord. That's a good way to put it. He must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Catch this, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the power, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and is disobedient to the wisdom uh, of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Why is John going to be great? Is it because he scores five touchdowns? Those of you who might have sat around and watched football a little bit yesterday, I'm guilty. Is it because he amassed a fortune that rivals anybody we know today that's very rich? What is his greatness? Well, it's in his character for one thing. He is going to be great before the Lord. He's going to be great. What a blessing. I don't know how you can extrapolate that and what all that means. We have a hint of that in Jesus's words that of all people, none is greater than John. In another verse, I'll share with you then, there's a caveat after that, but it's not a bad thing. He is highly commended by our Lord. What a blessing that is to hear those words. Well, secondly, he's going to be, now I have a question mark after this, a Nazarite. What is a Nazarite? Think of your Old Testament history. What is a Nazarite? Yes. Set apart. What does that uh, vow include? No drink. And it goes so far as to say, you know, you won't even use vinegar from the grapes. That's, that's for us in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. Also, it's interesting in the Old Testament, it also says you'll not take uh, a shears to them and cut their hair. That is not said here. That's why I say Nazarite question mark. That part of the vow is not spoken here. It also said he's not to cl- touch anything uh, defiled. The Jews were very particular about that in the Old Testament. Certain things or certain happenings that took place in your life would make you defiled and you could not even go to the temple to worship. But that would not be the case with this man, John, or for any other Nazarite. But because I have a question mark there, uh, I don't know what to tell you about the cutting of the hair. He is one who just does not touch strong drink, and we'll get to that. You can look that up for yourself in Numbers and in Judges 13. He's going to be a unique person with a unique position. He is filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. We believe in election here. Can I give this as proof? He tells Zechariah, your son is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Basically, he's saying he's mine. His soul has been claimed. He's going to be given power from, from on high. He's being fitted and qualified for the ministry by the hand of God here. 
He's going to be a self-denying prophet. He won't take part in drink. He's not to be under the influence of that. Again, I refer you to Numbers chapter 6. Because one of the reasons of this is a practical reason. People react in certain ways uh, to to a person that has drink or someone they think has drink. Uh, Let me quickly turn to... uh, Well, I'll wait till the next point to get to that. But in the book of Acts, we see this. People are speaking in tongues and doing these things and and somebody says, look at them. Uh, And somebody else says, ah, they've just been at the wine. They've just been drinking. That's why they act like this. John was not going to have that over top of him. He is going to be free of that. You cannot pin that to him. Oh, you only do this. You're only talking that way because you're drunk. No, he's not going to partake of that. And he's going to have the Holy Spirit. This is a wonderful thing. Do you realize the Holy Spirit is, the Jews would have known about this person, the Holy Spirit? I think sometimes we limit him to when he comes in at Pentecost in the book of Acts. But the Holy Spirit is prevalent all throughout the Old Testament. And they knew of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah should have known of him. Uh, His reaction here doesn't portray what he knew, but he had to know of him. Here is a verse from that great Psalm 51 where David's repenting and he cries out, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. The very words, Holy Spirit. John was to be filled with that Holy Spirit. David knew of that power. John was to be filled with that. There are Jews today who are basically Unitarian. They don't believe that Jesus has come yet and they don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Everything's focused on the Messiah. But there was a Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. It was, if Zechariah didn't know it before, he was going to know it by, by now. He was going to be filled with that Spirit He will be great before the Lord. Do we want to be great before him? This is what we ought to pray for. Please fill me with your spirit. Please come into my life. I have no power for godliness apart from you. This is reality here. What we are in the sight of God, that's what matters. And in this case, it's a great thing that's going on here. He does not need any other stimulation, talking about John, such as the wine or any other strong drink. The only stimulation he needs, he's going to have from birth, the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is what we need. In Acts chapter 2, people filled with the Holy Spirit are speaking in tongues. They're hearing it in their own language. And we read, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. You see, people don't understand unless they've been enlightened by the same spirit (laughs) that comes to believers. Remember what our Lord says, though, about judging people. We need to be careful about that. And they should have been careful about that. You remember the prophet Samuel and selecting who was going to be the king. We have the great person of Saul. We have other people that have come before. But when he comes to deal with David, we read these words, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then our Lord saying about John, this is the other verse I was talking about in Matthew 11, 
Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there was, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And then in 728 he says, even you though are greater than John. What's that all about? Dennis, you're building John up to be this great guy and the scripture says I'm better than him? And we'll dive into that then. Well, besides this calling, he is fitting. He is fitted because he's prepared for God, filled by the Holy Spirit. And then I want you to see his message here too. John has a message to deliver and that's one of the reasons he's great. His message is like that in John chapter 1, 29. We read this quote from John, or from uh, yeah, John talking about John. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These are poignant words. This is the Lamb of God. In other words, listen Jews, this is the Messiah. This is the one who is going to be the perfect sacrifice acceptable to God who's going to take away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. That was his message. It was simple, but it's great. What makes him so great? It's this message part of it, as well as the fitting that he got from God to be what he was going to be. Let me go to Luke in chapter 1. A couple other verses. Be soon time to end. Late in the chapter in verses 76 and 77, we read, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That's part of the message that John was going to proclaim. That was part of what made him great. He is preparing the way for the Messiah. And he knows his place. He must increase. I must decrease. So humility is all about John. He's a humble man. Even though he is the forerunner of the Messiah that these people have waited 400 years for, he is very humble. And after, uh, shortly into the Gospels, a few chapters in, we hear nothing else about John. You have to look long, long and hard. But if you don't know anything else about him, you need to know that. He came properly equipped by God to proclaim the message of the Messiah, and he did it in power. And he did it effectively. <clears throat> One of the things I think we ought to remember from this is uh, our children are never too young to receive grace. Will you say, well, yeah, we none of us have birthed John the Baptist. I know that. But God worked that in him from the womb. Some people that come and join our church give that sort of testimony. I don't ever remember a day when I wasn't a Christian. That's wonderful. It's not real dramatic, perhaps, but it is wonderful to praise God. Say hallelujah. All your life, you've been walking with the Lord. A lot of your what your parents did had something to do with that. But, you know, that's great. That's a blessed thing. And uh, we ought not to eschew that, throw it away. God's, John's greatness is in his character, but it's also in his ministry. What makes a successful ministry? If you watch the TV, certain stations, will you see a successful ministry? Well, this guy has 600,000 viewers every Sunday morning. 
What makes a successful ministry? Is it the size of the congregation? We have a fairly decent size here, 650 or so. But if you compare that to some other churches around town uh, who don't have a denominational name attached to them, (laughs) they have more people there. So does that mean we're not successful? What makes a successful ministry? Well, we're going to see that as we further dig into this. Is it a television program? Is it more numbers than anyone else has? Well, one of the things we see that it's evidence of his successful ministry is in verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's where it starts. These are the people who are looking for a Messiah. They are not, many of them were not walking in the truth because they've, you know, it's been 400 years. Some of these children were probably born without any knowledge that there was a Messiah coming. Well, we forgot about that because of 100 years, 200 years has passed. There's no Messiah coming. Maybe they forgot, but he was going to there be there and given this ministry. And the effect of it is he's going to turn many of them to the Lord their God. What a blessing. That's part of the effectiveness of his ministry. He turned their hearts to the Lord their God. He did not trumpet I'm here, I'm John the Baptist, I'm a child of promise, listen to me. He came and trumpeted the Lord. <laughs> he fulfilled Malachi 3 and, verse, and chapter 4 as well about the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus identifies him as the fulfillment of the promise to send Elijah to make preparations before the day of the Lord. That's in Mark But you see a hint of that here too. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. What does that mean? He is not Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What's so great about Elijah? Well, when you're talking about all the great prophets of the Old Testament, uh, who do you look to? Well, one of them we already discussed, we referred to Moses, but another was Elijah. Who was at the the Mount of Transfiguration with with Jesus? Yeah, great in the eyes of the Lord, the things he did, the power that was his. And the message here in John is referring the Jewish people to the history that they know. This is one like Elijah. He is going, and there's two possible interpretations of turning the hearts here to back to one another, the fathers to the children, children to the fathers. Talk about family reconciliation. And doesn't the gospel do that? Doesn't it bring reconciliation? Uh, it, It should, and it does quite often, but it could be also referring to the fathers, that is the patriarchs in Jewish history who have been, you know, taken away from the children who don't believe anymore. It's been 400 years. We don't believe that nonsense. Whatever the proper interpretation is, he's going to do that. He's going to unite them. And that is one of the wonderful things about his ministry. Just one of them. Lord willing, we'll deal with the other two or three next week. Would you take the things we studied and reflect on them? Realize what we're dealing here with. 
the work of God in history. And this is a, if not the, turning point in history. We're looking at preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. Well, let's, uh, let's be dismissed in prayer, shall we? Thank you, Father, for your words. And we pray, Father, that you would take the wood and stubble that's come from me and burn it up. Would you, Father, make the true word of God effective in our hearts that we might become like John, or rather more than that, like Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen.